Shakespeare exhorted his readers and exhorts us still to neither a borrower nor a lender be. However, I'm sure you would agree with me uh, during this interval before the Christmas bills began to arrive, this is not a good time to talk about uh, borrowing and lending. And if it's inappropriate in the economic sense, I'm sure after reading today's scripture, you will agree with me that it's inappropriate uh, to think of it in a spiritual sense as well. Because in the case of the Samaritans coming to know Jesus, we have the clear case of a faith, a beginning faith, that represented a borrowed faith. Verse 39 clearly tells us that at one time the faith of the Samaritan people rested on the testimony of the woman. The woman whom Jesus had met at the well. The woman who had confessed under the penetrating questions of her Lord that she uh, had had five husbands and the one with whom she lived was not her husband that her life had been one of shame, that her name was a byword and not a pretty one in that community. That woman who had gone to the well out in the desert because she had been ostracized most probably from the village well, that woman had gone back to the people of the village telling them about the man who had told her all the things she had ever done but had talked with her, had, had still offered her the living waters. And they believed because of the words of that first preacher to the Samaritans. They believed on him because of the words of the woman. And that, my friends, is the beginning faith but it's also a borrowed faith. You cannot lightly dismiss the concept of a borrowed faith, God reaching out through the faith of others. Think about it for a moment and you will agree with me that we cannot test, we cannot test all the spheres of human activity. So we have to take the word of others. Think how it would be if you discovered that you absolutely had to make a trip by airplane. Would you first go to Tullahoma, Tennessee or some other location where they have great wind tunnels and see for yourself that the wings on which your plane depends have the right curvature so as to promote that wonderful lift that keeps an aircraft in the air? Would you go to check out in minute detail uh, the fuselage so that you know it's intact and will keep you secure on that trip? I think not. I don't think we do that. I think we presume that someone who knows a great deal more about it has already done that for us and we'll take their word for it. The other day I was going down one of those ramps 
And that thing shifted on me, scared me more than the plane did. I, I wondered who had checked on that ramp lately. All these people standing on it, what's to keep it from going down? I could only trust that someone was doing maintenance work on that thing and, and would keep it intact. When we get our prescriptions, we go home and take them. Not many of us stop to think about uh, the character of the person who, who fills those prescriptions. If it uh, is clearly untampered with and has the seal intact, uh, even after our recent scares, we go on and take our medicine. We, we presume that isn't poison. That's something that'll help us. We, we take somebody else's word for it. And when we want to go out for dinner, we don't worry about the food in our favorite restaurant. We figure Marvin Zendler's already checked that out. And there's no slime in the ice box in that restaurant. We, we, we have a long time ago learned that if we're going to keep our sanity, we have to learn to take other people's word. We have to learn to take the expert's word for knowledge that we don't have. Someone has said, wisely said, that experience is a hard teacher and only a fool refuses to learn any other way. Only a fool. Wise people learn both ways. They learn by their own experience and by the experience of others. Only a fool refuses to learn by the experiences of others. Only a fool reinvents the wheel in every generation, has to discover for himself or herself what happens when you drive drunk, when you run out in front of a car, what happens when you bring infidelity into your marriage? Only a fool has to rediscover all these things and refuses to learn from the experiences of other people. We are a culture long since accustomed to taking the words of the experts, accepting the knowledge that we don't have. So then it follows, doesn't it? that if you want to know something about Jesus, you ought to gather authentic, you can get your most authentic information from people who know him and who live in his presence. That's the source of your most authentic information. That's one of the reasons why we owe the church such an unbelievable debt because the church has always been the gathering place for the sharing of that information from people who are in Christ or know something about Christ. And if you didn't have the church, you'd have a, a thin, inadequate conception of who Jesus is. But in the church, we have shared information. That's why we, we eschew uh, uh, self-righteousness. We get so concerned about it because when people get self-righteous, they don't share anymore. Not really. They become auditors. They're checking out everybody else's orthodoxy. Sure, we take the... We go to people who know something about Jesus. We go to someone whose word we can accept. It's 
not the end of our pilgrimage, but it's the beginning point. For faith begets faith. Faith feeds on faith. I think about that man who wrote a book the other day. It's out now. He, it was a different kind of book for him. It was a book about sex. He said he had written other kinds of books, but he needed to write one on sex because his other books weren't selling, and he knew that'd be a big seller. So he, he wanted to write a book about sex. But he said in the opening pages, he, he had a kind of a disclaimer in there. He said, now, in this book, you're not going to find words like Eddie Murphy uses and, and, and some of his people... Where do they get those words anyway? He said, you're not going to find words like that. And he didn't go on and say, it's because I have a, a theology that won't let me talk that way. He didn't say, I know the Bible says you shouldn't let any filthy talk uh, proceed out of your mouth. He didn't give all those uh, great big reasons about why he wasn't going to use that kind of language in his book on sex. He said, I can't talk that way because my mother's still living. And he said, my preacher, my preacher when I was a boy is still living. And, and he said, besides all that, my fourth grade teacher's still living. You see, there are significant people in our lives all of us have that, that constellation about us, and, and, and they're very important to our sky, to, our, to the parameters of our living, and we draw from them. We draw inspiration from them, and they, they, we can call it the descent of decency or whatever, but it comes on down to us because we, we recognize that these people are important in our lives. The other day, someone sent me a, a history of Excelsior Church. You know, that's the one I've renamed First Church Snipesville. Someone came out with a history of churches in that area, and, and they took a picture of the history of uh, my old church and sent it to me. Didn't cost them a lot of money to reproduce it. It's one paragraph. And not a very long paragraph, about like that, just gave the history of that little church. But then down at the bottom of that 29-member church, they had a, a line that said, names of all of those who have gone into the ministry out of this church. And there was one name on the bottom of that list. Well, that was the list. It was my name. And as I looked at that, I realized that unlike this church that has so many going into the ministry, I don't have to share that glory with anybody else. My home church hasn't produced but one. I don't have but 29 members. I guess that's a pretty good ratio to have one out of 29. And I suddenly was filled with a sense of, of warmth and a sense of, of strength as I began to see one by one the faces in that congregation. Uh, many of them gone to heaven now. And as I thought about them, I, I felt myself stand up a little bit taller 
because those people believe in me. And they've lent their faith to me, and I, in turn, draw faith and strength from them. And every time somebody says something ugly to me, whether it's on a telephone call or a, or a letter or anything like that, and it happens even to somebody like me, every time somebody does that, I, I, I think an ugly thought now and then. I, I think, boy, I wish they had to say that in Snipesville. Hey, you better not say that in Snipesville. You, you can get away with it in Houston, but don't go down there and say it in Snipesville. They'll crawl all over you. Those people believe in me. And I, I get a lot of strength from that. I, I don't want to let them down. Faith begets faith. Faith feeds faith. They have faith in me. That makes me stronger. And that's the way, that's what Jesus is talking about here when he shares this story uh, about this woman and her faith. Now, what kind of faith was she sharing? What kind of faith did they borrow? It ought to be a source of comfort to us to realize that her faith wasn't perfect. Now, six times Jesus had said something to this woman and, and six times she had made a response the seventh thing Jesus said to her was when he announced that he was the Messiah she had been waiting for. She said, someday the Messiah is going to come and he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus said, I am he. She didn't make any verbal response to that. She left her water pot and ran back to the village and started telling everyone about him. But what did she say? She said, this man has told me all the things I've ever done. And, and, of course, implicit in that was he loved me still. He knew me, but he still loved me. But then she raised a question. Read that scripture. She said, can this be the Messiah? She, that wasn't an affirmation. She didn't say he is the Messiah. She said, do you think he could be the Messiah? Hers was not a finished faith. She didn't have a faith with no questions left. She was open to learn more. I believe we borrow faith from people who are open. The people who no longer have any questions have a petrified faith. It gets hard and rigid, and, and we don't want to admit to people who have a hard and, and rigid faith that, that we have any doubt or we have any questions. But here was a woman terribly excited about her faith, but she still had some questions. And they started believing in, in Jesus because of the faith of this woman. She left her water pot. Her faith was so compelling that it was more exciting than her daily task. Uh, it, it was the most compelling thing in her life. She could face her shame. She could go and look into the eyes of the people who had condemned her, knowing that she was, she was a person of worth. Suddenly, her present became a, a great deal more important in her future than her past had been. And that's the kind of faith, real and vital, that people will borrow. You know, a faith experience is not complete 
until the desire to share it fills our hearts and makes us want to give it to others. Maybe that's the test of the value of a real experience. Is it exciting enough to make you want to share it? That's an infectious faith. And as you give that faith away, you get more faith in return as that faith feeds on faith. You and I know, however, that a borrowed faith is not finally adequate. That's not enough. That's a good beginning point, but that's not the finishing point. Every person, like Nathaniel, needs to come and see who this Jesus really is. Ultimately, we are all going to be faced with a question he raised with his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Not what is the carrot tale, but who do you say that I am? Now, that's faith finally has to be, if it's a saving faith, has to be a firsthand faith. We, like the men and women who heard her testimony, have to go to Jesus and they spent two days with him. And then they said in that marvelous verse, now we believe, not because of your word, but we have heard him for ourselves. We have been with him as well. Now we believe for ourselves. Now it's not an intermediary faith. Now it's not interim inspiration. Now it's well-placed faith in him who is the source of it all. Scroge said, why drink downstream when you can drink at the fountain? Now they've gone from downstream and they're drinking at the fountain of blessing itself. Why, it's only logical that borrowed faith won't stand the test. Somebody said that uh, if you just give somebody a great example, if you lift somebody up and say, be like this person, if you lift up a great example to somebody, that becomes a frustrating, bitter experience if they don't have the inner power to be like that person. McLaren said, most people are like thin, slender weeds growing in the bottom of a stream bed. And the fast-moving current has those weeds bent over in the bottom of that stream. And McLaren says to say to those people bent by the external pressures that you're supposed to stand tall and straight against the temptations of the world, to say to those people high and holy maxims without pointing them and putting them in touch with an inner power would be a cruel thing. It would be a fruitless thing to say to those weeds, stand up against the pressures. Don't be conformed to the world. Make this New Year's different. It would be a cruel thing if you didn't put them in touch with a recreating, transforming power that would help them do it. It's only a beginning faith designed to lead us, lead us to him who is the finisher 
of our faith. I love that story about Helen Keller. We all know who she was. Born over here in Alabama, 19 months, she had a disease that left her deaf and blind and mute. And this little girl, you remember, had a wonderful teacher, Ann Sullivan Macy. You remember, she taught her for years. And there was a time when Ann was teaching Helen that Ann became very ill. And a friend said to Ann Sullivan, Ann, you'd better get well, because without you, Helen is nothing. And Ann Sullivan said this, said, if that's the case, everything I've done has been in vain. If it just ends there with a person, then everything is in vain. We know that Christian experience has to go beyond, look what Christ has done for him or for her. Christian experience, if it's to be complete in saving, has to reach the point when we say, look what Christ has done for me. Like that, like that old miner in the well-known story who interrupted John Hutton while he was preaching one day. The miner stood up and led the congregation in the doxology. Don't know how we preachers would stand something like that, but just did it. And after the service, John Hutton was asking him why he interrupted his service like that. And the old miner said, uh, I, I just recently uh, accepted Christ as my personal Savior. And as you were talking about him, I just couldn't stand it. My heart was overflowing, and I just had to stand up and sing the doxology. And then the preacher smiled and said, that's wonderful. He said, you're a miner, aren't you? He said, yeah, I work deep down in the earth. He said, well, well how are you doing with the other fellows down there in the pit? And the miner smiled, and then he laughed. He said, I'm doing all right with them. Said, they tried to give me a hard time, but it's okay. Said, just today, just today, some of them said, you don't really put any stock in that old story about Jesus turning the water into wine, do you? You don't believe stuff like that really happened, do you? He said, well, I really don't know many of those stories yet. I don't know about the water being turned into wine. But he said, there's one thing I do know. In my house where I was beating my wife and pouring in the furniture to get something to drink, in my house, he turned beer into furniture. That's a devastating answer, isn't it? But that's what the Christian experience is. It's the one unanswerable argument when you no longer have to see what he's done for somebody else. But when the, the hope, the beginning faith can give you hope, but beginning faith can't give you certainty. When you finally say like those men said, we know, uh, we aren't just hoping anymore, but we know that's that spiritual certainty that we all need so desperately. Well, let's don't leave it there. Let's go back to the place where we started. 
which is to say that if you're groping blindly into the new year, take a step. And if you can't make your faith complete overnight, start with a beginning faith. Get a good model, someone who's in Christ, and strive to be like that person until you know Christ for yourself. Jesus said one day, look, if you don't believe what I'm saying, believe me for my work's sake. Just get off dead center. Paul said, look, if you, if you, if you don't want to follow Christ, imitate me for heaven's sake. I'm trying to be in Christ. Just make a start. Get off dead center. Don't be faithless. Be a believing person, even if you have to have a borrowed faith. 1981, there were 14,000 entrants in the New York Marathon. The interesting thing was not how many people entered that race, but the list of some of the people who finished it. One was an 81-year-old grandmother. Another who finished the race had a wooden leg. Another was a man who had had six heart attacks and still managed to run the marathon. But the one most interesting to me was a blind man who was roped to a sighted friend. To whom are you roped? Is anyone roped to you? Do you have a sighted friend? Let that sighted friend lead you to him who is your help and your salvation throughout all of the ages. Amen. Will you stand, please? And now, dear friends, let us bind ourselves with willing bonds to our covenant God and take the yoke of Christ upon us. This taking of his yoke upon us means that we are heartily content that he appoint us our place and work and that he alone be our reward. Christ has many services to be done. Some are easy, others are difficult. Some bring honor, others bring reproach. Some are suitable to our natural inclinations and temporal interests. Others are contrary to both. In some, we may please Christ and please ourselves. In others, we cannot please Christ except by denying ourselves. Yet the power to do all these things is assuredly given us in Christ who strengthens us. Therefore, let us make the covenant of God our own. Let us engage our heart to the Lord and resolve in his strength never to go back. Being thus prepared, let us now in sincere dependence on his grace and trusting in his promises, yield ourselves anew to him. Let us join in the congregational response. I am no longer my own but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, 
Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee, exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine, and I am thine. So be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. And now we're going to sing our hymn of invitation. Let those who wish to begin this new year by making their declaration of faith come forward as we stand, as we remain standing and sing the first, second, fifth, and sixth stanzas. First, second, fifth, and sixth stanzas of our hymn of commitment. 